Hi, I'm Deb Hunter, and welcome to All Things Tudor, the podcast that blows the dust off the history books and brings the world of the Tudors roaring back to life. Each episode will bring you awesome guests and topics, stories, and revelations. The power, the sex, the scandals, the romance, and the ruthlessness. So join me, and together we'll pull back the curtain and discover the real lives of the Tudors. Hi, and welcome to All Things Tudor. I am Deb Hunter, and today our guest is Vanessa Braganza, who has recently discovered the ciphers of Catherine of Aragon. Vanessa, how are you today? I'm doing very well, Deb. I'm really thrilled to be here. For anyone who doesn't know, can you tell them what the article was about? Sure. So the article is about um, a discovery I made. I'm a PhD student in English literature at Harvard, as well as actually a JD law student at Columbia Law School. And so I was writing a dissertation chapter for my English dissertation, which is on cryptography in the Tudor period and also the Jacobean period. So I was looking at a drawing by Hans Holbein, the, uh, the royal portraitist to Henry VIII. And we know Holbein mostly for his uh, beautiful, vivid portraits of the Tudors, uh, Thomas More, Thomas Cromwell, Henry VIII, uh, Anne of Cleves, infamously. And but we, what a lot of people don't know is that he also designed monogram ciphers for Henry and also people at the Tudor court. And so I was looking at one of these ciphers, which are basically tangles of letters of 10 or more, uh, 10 or more letters, And I came across this one that I couldn't stop staring at. And the reason I couldn't stop staring at it was that it had certain letters in it that you can only do so much with. These ciphers were usually romantic symbols and the letters unscrambled to spell the names of the two halves of a couple usually. And this one had letters like X and C and K in it. And I... I just, I saw, I stopped and I listed out the letters and I couldn't shake the feeling that there's only so much you can do with these letters. And so it really shouldn't be necessarily, necessarily that hard to predict at least one of the solutions. And I came up with, um, with two solutions that turned out to be historically supported that the letters unscrambled to spell Henricus Rex, so a Latin formulation which translates to Henry the King, and Catherine spelled with a K. And after a bit of historical detective work, uh, it came about that this decoding was consistent with Catherine of Aragon's and, and Holbein's dates at the court of Henry VIII. And uh, so I, I had come up with the solution and, and then the New York Times covered that discovery. So that was, uh, that was the subject for the Times article. Thank you for that. So these ciphers were commissioned by Catherine specifically, do you believe? Yeah, that's uh, that's exactly what I believe. So lots of people at court commissioned um, either jewelry or ciphers by Holbein. And what's striking about this one is that Henricus Rex is, that formulation is a standard formulation for the monarch. Uh, Elizabeth Regina would have been what Elizabeth I used, for example. So this is a standard formulation. 
But uh, Holbein's dates at uh, Henry's court, his dates as the royal portraitist begin in 1532. And that was the year that Henry, uh, uh, either that year or the next year that Henry married Anne Boleyn in a secret ceremony. He was at that point leaning on Cromwell to finalize the annulment uh, from Catherine. So Catherine was being pushed out at that point. Um, and she is finally pushed out in 1533. And, and Holbein comes to court as the royal, the royal portraitist. So that it's a time when we know that Catherine was really to the bitter end, resisting uh, being delegitimized by Henry. So it wasn't a woman who sat quiet. Um, she called on uh, her nephew, Charles V, the Holy Roman Emperor. She called on the Pope um, to prevent the first divorce and then annulment. And so what this cipher does is by linking her name together with that specific formulation, Henry the King, Henricus Rex, uh, undergirds that uh, insistence on her legitimacy. And it does it in a really cheeky way because this is a, this is a cipher that uh, you can't unscramble it on a first look. Uh, it takes some work. And, so, and yet it's actually the sketch by Holbein is actually uh, for a pendant. You can see there's a loop at the top. There are squares where jewels are supposed to be mounted. And so it, it designs, it works the cipher design into a pendant that's supposed to be worn. And so it's, there's a real defiance to it of wearing this, of wearing this claim out in plain sight and yet in a way that is not immediately legible to people who are not in the know. And so I do believe she commissioned it as an act of, if you like, surreptitious defiance and that that's very in line with what we know of her personality. Just a off the cuff question, Vanessa, if they were secret, did she believe Henry knew what she was trying to convey? That's a really excellent question. And I do believe that there was an element of daring to it. I do believe that that kind of decoding by Henry is something that she would not have run from. It is something that I think the cipher invites. And it is something that these ciphers invite generally. The beauty of making a cipher like this public is that, or, or really any kind of cipher, is that a cipher can sit out in plain sight um, because it relies on the viewer knowing the secret to unscramble it. And so there's a cheekiness to all ciphers that they sit out in plain sight, waiting for the person or the people in the know with the right information to be able to unscramble them. Ciphers aren't afraid to go public. And so I think that I think that she would not have run or shied away from the idea of Henry decoding this cipher, um, whether he had the information to do it or even whether this sketch was actually produced as a, as a pendant, whether the pendant was ever made uh, is not certain. But I do believe that it's a that Henry deciphering the pendant is something that she would not have run from. She did certainly didn't make any secret of her ongoing claim to be his only legitimate queen. She made that very clear to him. It's really interesting, isn't it? Yeah, no, it's it's fascinating. It is. How was Holbein involved and how did he keep his head during all this? <laughs> it's, a really, it's a really interesting question. Holbein has um, what I call a chameleon. He's a man who's able to change his colors and he owes part of that to his profession. He was a craftsman. Holbein actually started out in England 
as with uh, Thomas More, uh, Henry's uh, previous uh, Lord Chancellor, as his patron. And then he lived with Thomas More from 1526 to 29. At that point, he went back to Europe and More obviously fell out of favor and Henry beheaded him. So that when Holbein comes back to England and Henry takes him on as the royal portraitist, Holbein's previous association with Moore isn't doing him any damage. His reputation as an artist, in fact, is elevating him. Later on, Holbein will go on to paint Anne of Cleves infamously, and Henry will take one look at the real Anne of Cleves and decide that uh, she looks so different from the portrait that he doesn't want to marry her. And yet Holbein kept his head. So this was a man who, by virtue of being an artist, the person behind the canvas or behind the sketchbook in this case, really cast his light forward upon his subjects rather than backward upon himself. And it has afforded him a degree of impunity. I think to the present day, it's afforded him a degree of invisibility unto himself that allows him to be a significant player in Tudor politics without being independently involved in those politics. That's a very good way of looking at it. It just dawned on me how he played both sides of the fence and never had any any blowbacks at all. No, it's really fascinating. It Um, is. And he seems to have been pretty shrewd um, and willing to, as the way I put it, to change his colors in order to keep his head and also in order to keep his job. Um, And this is something that's true of Holbein even further back in his life because he starts out in Europe, not as a portraitist, well, he paints portraits as well, but he starts out uh, as a painter of, in part, Catholic altarpieces. And then along comes the Reformation and Holbein hies himself to England. And so he seems very adept at changing his colors in order to survive. Well, you've got to do what you've got to do, that's for sure. Let's get back to the medallion. I'm so curious about that. Can can you just tell me everything, how you actually discovered the drawings, how you studied them? How, how did you learn to decipher it? Just tell us everything you can. So the, the drawings are contained in uh, Hans Holbein's jewelry book. And this is the word book is used a little generously here because uh, what used to be Holbein's sketchbook was uh, cut up is sometime between the 17th and the 19th centuries. We know that at some point this was a bound volume of drawings. And then sometime between the 17th and the 19th centuries, someone cut the drawings out and mounted them. So these loose drawings that are now mounted on cardstock are in the British Museum and the British Museum has digitized them. So that's how I came across them, was on the British Museum's website looking at these sketches. And it's a really a great blessing. Actually, this I started to look at them during COVID. It was a great blessing that they were digitized. And the first thing that occurred to me was because these ciphers, and there are a lot of them in the sketchbook, and they're equally, if not more complicated, some of them as Catherine of Aragon's cipher, which is truly one of the more complicated ones for the number of letters that's in it. But it struck me that the way to go about dealing with the confusion of these ciphers was to systematize the way you process them. It, people tend to look at these, when I, whenever I show one of these ciphers to, to people who ask about what I do, they will take one look at it and say, oh my God, I can't see anything. 
And in a way, that's what it's designed to do. It's designed to overwhelm your eyes. And so you have to find a way to break it down into its component parts. So the first thing that I do is I go at least three times from left to right across the cipher. And I list out the letters that I know must be there. And I know they must be there, the what I call the given letters, the givens, uh, because at least one part of each of those letters does not overlap with any other letter. So that that letter must be there because part of at least one component of the letter is unique to that letter. So I do this three times across the repetition to sort of uh, to make sure you, you cover everything, which you may not, given how complicated the ciphers are the first time around. And then I allow myself to go back a fourth time, and I list out letters that might be there, the maybes, uh, letters that might be there but don't have to be. These can be letters which overlap completely with other letters. They're letters which are kind of the, the opposite of the givens, right? That they don't have any part of them that is unique to them. Every part of them overlaps with some other letter. And so they don't necessarily have to be there. So I go once from left to right and I list out the letters that may be there. If you have an E, for example, an F naturally overlaps with an E. And so if you have an E, you might have an F. So once I've done that, once I list out the, uh, the musts and the maybes, I then take stock of the letters I have and I see if I can come up with any solutions, with any names that in the first place satisfy all of the musts that use up all of the given letters and perhaps the maybe letters, but certainly all of the givens and names also that fit what I know about the historical circumstances in their narrowest sense. What are the narrowest dates? Who was where at what point? Who had an opportunity to interact with whom? And what were the surrounding circumstances? In this case, what what was the what were the politics of the Tudor court? Fifteen thirty two is a is a crucial year, theologically, uh, in terms of Henry's break with the Catholic Church, um, in terms of legislated iconoclasm, Henry's state legislated destruction of Catholic buildings and statues and books, um, and and also politically for Catherine, uh, and geographically for Holbein who comes back to England. So so the solution has to satisfy those circumstances as narrowly as you can define them. Uh, and, and that's when you know you have a plausible solution. You really did a, a deep dive into this. How long did it take you? <laughs> it, it, took, it took a few weeks to satisfy myself because you, you tend to have an aha moment, right? Because it is a puzzle uh, in, in its first, in, in its initial sense, this is a puzzle. And once you have the letters, you, you're playing anagrams, but you have I had an aha moment where I said, oh, Henricus, Rex, and Catherine. But that aha moment isn't the end. It's actually just the beginning because you can't stop there and say, I figured it out. You have to then check your dates, check the circumstances, and also check things like manuscripts. So that took a while because this uh, solution, this solution depended on Catherine spelling her name with a K. And I took a few weeks to look up um, as many autograph examples of Catherine's signature as I could. And invariably, she signs herself Catherine the Queen with a K uh, at that point in her life when she's when she's Henry's queen. And she spells it the same way every time, Catherine, as signatures usually are, right? They're formulated the same way every time. Uh, so Catherine is always spelt with, with a K and Queen is always spelt Q-U-E-N-E because this is way before the standardization of English spelling. 
And then I came across an early portrait of Catherine uh, by an Estonian painter where she's wearing, interestingly, a, a, a choker necklace with K-shaped links interspersed with Tudor rose-shaped links. And so that was another major piece of supporting evidence that not only is she spelling her name with a K, signing her name with a K, but that she actually does wear monogram jewelry, um, which comes in a huge way into fashion at the Henrician court as well. So it took a few weeks to amass all that evidence. And you really must, because these kinds of ciphers, these kind, this kind of historical work is really is detective work. And it's easy to be seduced by the aha moments. But you have to see the aha moment as just a doorway into a possibility that you then have to work to support. I like your analogy there. And Professor Susanna Lipscomb, who has a podcast called Not Just the Tudors, and also has an I Learned course on the Tudors, says the same thing, Catherine with a K. So thank you very much for touching on that. I know there's, uh, well, they didn't have standardized spelling back then, of course, so there's a lot of discussion about it. So thank you for bringing that up. And I'll make a note to put that in the title, Catherine with a K. <laughs> It's kind of like, um, it's a bit like uh, another one of my favorite novels, which isn't a Renaissance novel, Anne of Green Gables, right? Anne with an E. Um, but she did. She did invariably spell her name with a K. And speaking with Anne with an E, would Henry VIII and Anne Boleyn have known about what Catherine was doing with these ciphers? I don't know. And that would really depend on whether whether the sketch was ever realized and made into a pendant. That was, that's what would have put it out in the open in front of people's eyes. And that's something I haven't found evidence for as yet, but I've started to look. Um, the thing with jewelry in this period is that all sorts of things can happen to it, starting with it may never have been made. It could have been made and then melted down and the materials remade into something else. It could exist and not have been discovered yet. And so there's a whole range of possibilities. But I wonder, because after Holbein died, Henry retained his sketches, his sketchbook was retained. And so it's it certainly, it's perfectly possible that Henry had an opportunity to cast his eyes on this drawing. So I don't know that, unless the pendant was made, that Anne would have been aware of it. But I think Henry would have had an opportunity to be aware of it, even if it wasn't made. If you're a fan of Tudor history, come join us at All Things Tudor, a Facebook group dedicated to, well, All Things Tudor. Members can contribute a wide array of subject matter about Tudor history. You can also listen to the All Things Tudor podcast. There's a book club and a weekly clubhouse live audio chat, often featuring very special guests. Look for upcoming surprises for the group members in 2022. Become a member of one of the largest groups of Tudor history enthusiasts on the planet. Simply go to the Facebook search bar, type in All Things Tudor, select the option to join the group, and of course answer the membership questions. Join us now at All Things Tudor. Look forward to seeing you. It's really a fascinating subject and I'm so glad you discovered this. It's like you said, being a historian is a lot like being a detective. Absolutely. That's something that I really hope people take away from my work is that, you know, we tend to think of history, I think a lot of people tend to think of history as 
a body of facts, which is not primarily what history is. If you think about it, history is a series of choices. And something that really resonates with ciphers is that uh, is that history is a series of choices about what we choose to see and not see. And ciphers fly under the radar because they're often hidden in plain sight. We have to choose to see them. So ciphers turn out to be more than just ciphers, right? They're a metaphor for history itself, that what we know of the past is really conditioned by the way we look. And so that's one thing that I'd really love for people to take and, and apply to other parts of history, including parts of history that may have nothing to do with literal ciphers, to really question and investigate what we think we know and who we think was there as well. I've got to say one of the saddest moments I think in my work was walking through Hampton Court Palace and hearing two girls who were just walking past me say, Catherine of Aragon was never here, which actually isn't true. Uh, Catherine was at Hampton Court. She was there in the early days before Anne was truly on the scene when Cardinal Wolsey still owned the place. Uh, her apartments uh, are no longer there. They've been, they've been broken down. If I remember correctly, William, uh, William and Mary much later on broke them down to build their own apartments elsewhere in the palace. Um, but just that sense of she was never here was really poignant. I mean, it's, it's, it goes to show you just how much we can miss if we don't look for things that are hidden in plain sight or if we don't question the history we think we know. Very good points. I do have to ask you, was there one thing, many things, what did you learn during your research that surprised you? One thing that surprised me enormously was just how pervasive the sense of surveillance was at Henry's court. And it hit me, I, I, I got a sense of this from studying cryptography in this period. You get the rise of the surveillance state from Henry's reign to Elizabeth's. By the time you get Elizabeth I, she has a whole network of spies, starting with Francis Walsingham at the top, whom she appropriately refers to as her eyes, all the way down to Thomas Phillips, uh, the poor man at the bottom who's a linguist by training, but actually deciphering letters and handing them back up to Walsingham. And so I knew in theory how pervasive the system of surveillance becomes from the beginning to the end of the 16th century. But walking into Hampton Court Palace and experiencing it was a totally different matter altogether. You walk into the great hall that Henry built for Anne, and there are these, you know, we all know the term eavesdropping, but uh, there are literal eavesdroppers uh, built into the woodwork. If you look, if you happen to look up uh, these, uh, these heads with hats on, looking down from the eaves, and it's meant to underscore the sentence that there's someone always watching. Even the poetry in the period, uh, the literature coming out of Henry's court also shows that preoccupation. There's a poetry manuscript at, uh, that uh, several courtiers, actually starting with a couple of women at Henry's court, uh, circulate amongst themselves. This is a manuscript where Thomas Wyatt, Mary Shelton, Margaret Douglas, they each add their own poems and pass the manuscript on to the next person. The manuscript still exists, it's in the British Library. But the first poem is a poem by Thomas Wyatt that starts, take heed the time lest ye be spied. And it goes on through several stanzas to talk about this fear of being discovered. 
And towards the end, it has this line that is something like, um, to love unspied is but a half. So in other words, if you manage to carry on your secret love affair in secret and no one ever discovers you, it's just happenstance. In other words, being discovered is, your secret being discovered is inevitable. That's how pervasive the sense of, uh, of prying eyes was. And so that surprised me to actually, in a way, viscerally experience that, to walk into the space and feel eyes staring down at you from the eaves. It really brings to life what the experience, an approximation of what the experience must have been like of living there in this high stakes political chess game where being discovered could spell death. And so that that surprised me. That experience coming to life really surprised me. Good point. And back to the topic of Catherine and secret things coming out. A lot of things are coming out about women from the era, aren't they? A lot of writings, a lot of information. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I'm really pleased to see it because very often when I talk to um, when I talk to folks about my work, they're surprised in a lot of in a lot of cases to hear that I I uh, research women writers in this period. And what's uh, what is interesting is that women writers are not particularly few and they're not particularly hidden either from the early 16th all the way through to the late 17th century and of course beyond. But this is a period that we tend to think of as being dominated by Shakespeare, Milton, Edmund Spencer. But the reality is that women are not just writing, women are writing in all the same genres, plays, poetry, prose romances. They're publishing as well and they're in conversations with men. So that it's not that women are hidden under the rug, it's that we're not seeing them. And when you actually come right down to it and you, and you list out the women who are writing and publishing and in the mainstream literary conversation in this period, they are there in the same numbers as the canonical male writers. So women like Lady Mary Roth, first woman to write a pro, to publish a prose romance, from first woman to publish a, a secular sonnet sequence, um, Isabella Whitty, Margaret Moore Roper, Thomas Moore's eldest daughter, um, Amelia Lanier, Aphra Bain, Mary Sidney Herbert, who actually hosted some of the canonical writers at her home in Wilton, including Edmund Spencer. So it's I'm really pleased to see this movement towards making these women visible. I it kind of reminds me of. Um, Virginia Woolf, the modernist writer who in 1929 gave a lecture at Cambridge where she said women couldn't possibly have written with any success in Shakespeare's time. They just wouldn't have had the opportunity. But the reality is that although the Renaissance is a time when the culture, the cultural script is telling women you shouldn't write, you shouldn't speak, you shouldn't have even a free will, that it's a time also when women aren't following the cultural script and they're not following it in huge numbers. My favorite example of this kind of irony or this disjoint between the cultural prescriptions and what women are actually doing is a man called Edmund Tilney, who was Elizabeth I's master of the revels. He was essentially the state censor. So all plays, all of Shakespeare's stuff had to go through Edmund Tilney before it could be staged. And Tilney wrote that a husband ought to steal away his wife's private will. In other words, a woman shouldn't have any will of her own. This was a man whose boss was the queen. And so it's a really flagrant example. It's actually a really funny example of this disjoint 
between the cultural script and what women are actually doing in the period, which tells us that we shouldn't take the cultural script at face value. We've been having a really interesting talk in All Things Tudor about the European concept of women during this era and what was going on in North America, because a lot of our indigenous tribes were run by females. Men couldn't even own property. So it was almost the opposite of what we see in Tudor England and how things have been held down and how women, like we're just now hearing their voices, so to speak, discovering their voices. Yeah, absolutely. And I think I think what that calls upon us to do is once again to, in a way, re- rewrite history, reformulate what we think of as the historical truth. It's not that women are an appendix to history. They're in the main text. They're in the main conversation. And in order to, for that realization to have consequence, we have to tell history differently. It's not the, just the age of Shakespeare and Milton. It's the age of Isabe- uh, Isabella Whitney, Amelia Lanyard, Mary Queen of Scots, Mary Roth, Catherine of Aragon. The default story, the main narrative has to change because it is different from the way that we're imagining it. You're so right. Well, you have everything going for you. May I ask what what's planned next? Can you give us any insight? <laughs> of course. So I am working on my first book, which is at the proposal stage at the moment. And it's a book provisionally titled The Secret Seekers. And it's about this whole history of the rise of cryptography and just what we can find in plain sight from the court of Henry VIII all the way up through hopefully the English Civil War is where I'm hoping to end. Um, so I am uh, I am hoping to produce an entire book on this history, which includes some of the major history that we've overlooked about women uh, as well. So so that's that's book number one is is in the works at the moment. And I actually start the second thing that's next for me. Uh, I start law school this September. So that's in that area. I specialize in voting rights and constitutional law. You are so busy. I can't thank you enough for joining me today. I do have to ask you, would it be possible for you to share anything that I can put on the All Things Tutor website so that listeners can go there and see what we've been talking about, see what you've been working on? Absolutely. It's really crucial, in fact, with ciphers, I think, to have a visual. Um, yeah, I would love to send you some some actual Tudor ciphers, including some by Holbein, that folks can also try out for themselves what we've been talking about, how to break it down into its component letters. And who knows, maybe someone will have a Sherlock Holmes moment. I really encourage people to do that. So yeah, I'd be happy to send you uh, some examples of ciphers and even if you like some pages from my cipher notebook where I write this stuff down. That would be great fun, informative and educational. So if you could do that, that'd be great, Vanessa. My pleasure. Well, thank you for joining us. Have we covered everything? I mean, we could talk for hours about this. It's like I'm peeling an onion. You you bring something up and my, my brain goes, I want to know more about that. And then you bring something else up and there's just so much to take in. I'm glad to hear it. I, I love when people get curious about about what I do. It's extremely gratifying. Well, are you on social media or how can people follow you? So I am on Twitter. My hashtag is at 
Vanessa Braganza. And I also have a website, which is vmbraganza.wixsite.com slash home two. And I'll give you that URL also for the, um, the post that you're going to do. On Instagram, I'm uh, at the rare book detective, which should be pretty easy. Um, so, um, so those are my three social media platforms and you can find more of my writing and my work there. Well, a huge thank you to you, Vanessa. You are an absolutely fascinating, brilliant person. And I'm thrilled that you've joined me today. It was my pleasure, Deb. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you. And for our listeners, thank you for making the magic happen. And please subscribe to the podcast, leave a review. And have a great day, everyone. Thanks. You've been listening to All Things Tudor. My thanks go to listeners, my husband, and my team. If you like what you hear, leave a review, follow wherever you get your podcast, and share with your friends to help others find the show. Join the All Things Tudor Facebook community to connect with tens of thousands of Tudor history lovers. You can also connect with me across social media at the Deb ATL. Thanks for listening, and we'll catch y'all later.